Welcome to Econ Roots, your podcast on the roots of economic thought. I'm Stefan. And I'm Otto. Let's get on with today's conversation. The category tonight, top 10 ways my life has changed since winning the Nobel Prize. Top 10 ways my life has changed since winning the Nobel Prize. And to present uh, tonight's top 10 list, the winner of the 1999 Nobel Prize in economics, Professor Robert A. Mundell. Here we go. ways my life has changed since winning the Nobel Prize. Here we are, number 10. Can end almost any argument by asking, and did you ever win a Nobel Prize? <laughs> the number one way my life has changed since winning the Nobel Prize. In Stockholm, I get more tail than Frank Sinatra. <laughs> So, welcome back, dear listeners. As you probably heard, today's episode started a little bit different. It started with one of the stars of the first show, Robert Mondell, in one of his legendary appearances on the David Letterman show. Apparently, he was there several times. And uh, we'll link to this one, which is Top 10 Ways My Life Changed from Winning a Nobel Prize. Um, but apparently, he was there a couple of times, and, uh, and this is just classic, classic television. So, we thought you should enjoy that and hear the words of the master himself. And here's one of the stars of our episode today, which is called Modern Macro Perspectives. So we have Robert Mundell, and then we have Thomas Sargent, and then we have Christopher Sims. Um, so before we get into what Mundell contributed with, I'm just going to briefly do his bio. But before that, I'm going to remember to say, welcome, Otto. Thank you. Um, are you good? I'm fine. Perfect. I am also very good. I'm very excited for today's uh, conversation. I think it's going to be fun. So uh, Robert Alexander Modell um, got his. Uh, he was born in uh, October 24, 1932, and he died about a year ago, unfortunately, uh, April 4th, uh, 2021. He received the uh, the Nobel Prize in 1999 for his pioneering work in monetary dynamics and optimum currency areas. He was a Canadian, born in Ontario, Kingston, Ontario. Uh, his dad was an officer and a teacher of military uh, stuff, whatever, shooting, I don't know, whatever you like, <laughs> strategy. <laughs> but uh, after World War II, they moved to British Columbia, where he uh, went to high school and enjoys chess and boxing. I thought that's a good mix. Uh, yeah, I remember also sometimes when you uh, when we, when you teach institutions and the rule of the game and so on, you say that you, sh- you should not mix up the rules of those two games. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> or rather, the, the rules uh, decide how uh, the games are played. Exactly. So exactly. if you had the same rules uh, in, for, in chess as you have in boxing, it, you should expect it to be much more violent. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, anyway, so he uh, from there, he got his Bachelor of Arts in Economics and a Russian at the Vancouver School of Economics at the University of British Columbia. Yay. Uh, I, I was there as part of my PhD, so uh, that's good. Um, he then went on to the University of Washington in Seattle, and he got his PhD from MIT, uh, and had also been affiliated with London School of Economics during his studies. Um, for most of his career, he was at Columbia University and Chinese University of Hong Kong, but he's also been at Waterloo, McGill, Stanford, John Hopkins, 
Besides academic work, he worked quite intensely with, and we'll probably get into talking a little bit about his effect there, uh, in various international bodies, such as, as the uh, IMF, the United Nations, European Commission, World Bank, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, uh, yeah, and he is, uh, besides his, his theory, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, one of his The controversies around him is that he is known as the father of the euro, which we can maybe talk a little bit about as well. And one of the uh, fathers, at least. One of the fathers, at least. Yeah, one of the fathers. He's also uh, contributed with his uh, uh, the paper, the dollar and the policy mix, is credited with founding the idea of supply side economics. Actually, so that those are big contributions in itself. Uh, but let's discuss those in the line. So, uh, so why did he get the prize? Well, I, the the main reason is you just mentioned was that he um, uh, put the, the macroeconomics as we've been talking about into an international context. Um, so far, we, we really haven't uh, discussed the international aspect of, of macroeconomics. And, Good point. Yeah. And until, until then, uh, most uh, until uh, Mandel's contributions, uh, You often assumed that uh, that the, the, uh, every country was in was isolated from 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 the outside world. Mm. So economic policy would only have to deal with domestic affairs, not uh, be influenced by by international uh, affairs. And what uh, Mandel realized was that uh, the outside world. Is important oh, yeah. for how the economy works, how economic policy works, and the the your uh, the regime you have, uh, uh, the your currency regime, uh, and the regime you have for international capital movements uh, uh, is a very important for for how economic policy works. So um, basically, if if um, It, if if uh, if you take that into account, uh, it could play uh, a very important role, uh, and that that's his uh, his main claim to to fame. But he did the other thing, as mentioned. He looked at uh, optimal currency mm -hmm. areas, mm -hmm. um, and perhaps uh, Europe is one. Yeah. Um, that's why he's considered one of the founding fathers of of the of the Europe, mm -hmm. because that's. The, the idea behind the euro yeah. is that that uh, euros were or could become an optimal uh, currency area. We can talk about what what that means. And and and, and he did. He was very early on uh, uh, talking about the supply side in, in economics. Usually, we we have been talking about the the demand side um, especially in macro yeah. yeah especially in macro and we we we, uh, we did touch about touch uh, upon uh, the supply side when we talk about shocks to productivity mm. but uh, the idea that the uh, that that economic policy should deal with structural mm. issues mm -hmm. uh, uh, to enhance the supply side uh, Was, became very important in in the 1980s and still is very important and um, and Mandel was was uh, and very early contributor to 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 that yeah so a couple of things there to discuss um, for our listeners so the first thing about the um, 
because it's leading up to the other point. So the first thing about that currency thing, right? And so as far as I understand it, he he had a theory pretty early on that basically a couple of currencies would win out, like 51 countries or something would use the euro or a version of it and, and everything on the uh, on the American side would use dollars and so on. And obviously that wasn't really what happened, right? But also I think... I think he was critical of a euro without a some kind of financial ministry behind them, right? But then you get the whole issue about sovereignty and who could decide policy and so on. So this is a very tricky issue, um, right? Um, but also another thing, and this is my, my second point, I'd like to hear your point on, like, if you do tie politicians' hands even more, like with a single currency, that would actually advocate more supply-side politics, right? Well, yes, it it, 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 it it could because you the, the if you have a common currency, currency yeah. then uh, and we're going to going to talk to, uh, a little bit about that today. Yeah. Uh, if if you don't have your own currency, mm-hmm. you can't have your own monetary policy. Yes, exactly. So then you would have to 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 do something else. Yeah, and then supply side economics could become more important. But I think. Supply-side economics is important in its own right. Oh, I agree. Uh, I definitely because, agree. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it's supply-side economics is not really that much about uh, business cycles, oh. um, which we are usually talking about when we're talking about macroeconomics. Yeah. We're talking about uh, why do we have business cycles? Can we do something mm-hmm. about them? But uh, when we're really talking about economic growth, mm-hmm. uh, when we're talking about supply-side economics to how to to permanently lift uh, a, uh, the income uh, rather than 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 the, the short term in, influence yeah i actually really like that you said that because one of my notes right read, uh, that i wrote down before this episode was that discussion right i mean the birth of macro and now we're talking about modern macro perspective but the birth of macro especially if we take like a guy like Keynes was sort of like saving the market from itself like you know it's like sort of like the market's a good idea but it's it's an irresponsible teenager so sometimes we have to sort of like regulate it where supply side sort of shifts the focus into how do we do this the most optimal how do we get the most optimal growth the most optimal results and so on right so like uh, like lowering a corporate taxes and these kind of things right so uh, so so I'm glad that you agreed on that um, so let's talk about optimum currency. What 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 do we mean by this? Like, what what is the concept? Because I'm not sure our listeners necessarily understand that. No, uh, but uh, if if we have uh, an optimal c- currency area, is an area where it makes sense to have the same currency. Yeah, uh, it that could be a nation state. Mm-hmm. But Typically, it could also yes. be, be yeah. another nation states. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, it doesn't really necessarily coincide with 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 the borders. So what what is the advantage of having your own currency? The advantage is that you uh, you can set your own policy, um, and um, if you are hit by a shock. Um, for instance, if, if if two countries have the same currency and one country is hit by a shock, the other is not, mm-hmm. the shock is asymmetric, mm-hmm. you would say, then uh, it could be an advantage for the country hit by a mm-hmm. shock to to respond uh, by uh, economic policy. Yeah. Uh, so if we have the same uh, currency, then you cannot do that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that limits the, 
the the how big uh, uh, an optimal uh, currency area should be. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we could have the whole world, uh, mm-hmm. and then then in a sense we. At one time, did because mm-hmm. gold was used as as, as as money all over the world. As oh yeah, one, uh, more or less, yeah. uh, more or less. But he actually but, comments uh, on that in his uh, in his uh, acceptance lecture. He yeah. talks about the periods of the 20th century is divided into uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that's that's the that's the, the disadvantage of mm-hmm. having the same uh, currency. Of course, the the advantage of having the same currency is that it's much easier to trade. Mm-hmm. Um, if We all had our individual <laughs> currencies. Would have to <laughs> to exchange uh, every time we we made uh, exchanges in yeah. the real economy. Would have to to go from from uh, Stephen dollars to Otto dollars or whatever. I so think I would call it a mark, Stephen okay. Mark. So <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably. Um, so uh, so if if you uh, if you facilitate trade. And transactions by having the same currency. Yeah. So the idea of an optimal currency area is that you should expand it uh, until the uh, disadvantages uh, catches the, yeah. the advantages. Yeah. So that that should really Classic decide trade-off. how 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 big should a common currency area be, and um, what what is. Uh, of significance here is how integrated the economies mm-hmm. uh, are. Uh, the, the United States is, is one c- common currency area, and and um, of course, it, the United States can be hit by 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 regional shocks. Yeah, uh, if the oil industry is hit, it's believe. For instance, Texas will be hit, but uh, not uh, states not producing oil. Yeah, but. Uh, Instead of, uh, but but you have uh, internal flexibility uh, by internal movement. Mm-hmm. So if labor is quite uh, mobile, it doesn't matter. If, yeah. if if Texas is hit by a, a shock, uh, all of the oil workers uh, can go to Michigan or or New York or where, wherever. wherever. Yeah. Uh, if they can do that, yeah. then the it it. it The need for a regional economic uh, policy response would be bigger. Yeah. So, so, so that's of course important. And and one of the ideas behind the euro actually was that you could integrate mm-hmm. Europe by uh, introducing this common currency. Yeah. So where you so a common labor market and these kinds of things. You would integrate yeah. labor yeah. markets and uh, other markets would. Uh, it was hoped yeah. would would be more integrated, um, and there was a big discussion which should come first. Yeah. Uh, should we integrate uh, the economies and then have the euro, or the other way around? Yeah. Uh, and I, we did it the other way around, uh, and <laughs> it, it's it's still uh, uh, discussed if it, it yeah, was a good idea. That that's the that's a, the pretty hot up uh, bottom issue, and I actually think a lot of his stuff is. Uh, unfortunately, becoming more relevant, right? Because, um, well, well, two things. Let's start somewhere else. I mean, we can see through history that the idea of optimum currency areas has sort of have existed, right? Like in in the in the past, like Middle Ages and so on. The, the idea of a currency being national wasn't so important. Like you would trade if you knew. 
the gold level of a or silver probably more likely a silver level of a certain year of coinage from let's say Austria or England or something that you would use that to trade in Sweden as well and so on and and whenever kings were dumb enough to go to war they would literally devaluate by actually putting out silver and the market would quickly respond to that knowing yeah we'll accept we'll accept Swedish coinage from this year but not that year and and so on right and we also see in terms of crisis that regional regional currency do spring up like we had the um the Sønderjylland the Holstein Schleswig-Holstein area of Denmark at, at various points in history they had very local Like the municipality of Turner, I think, had their own currency at one point and so on. But of course, it was a very more local local world uh, 100 years ago or so. Um, but actually, I think it's interesting what's going to happen with these discussions following, for instance, the Russian invasion into Ukraine, right? Because there, there can potentially be some debates about like how much of a world currency is the dollar, for instance, uh, if these kind of things happen. Uh, so, so, so I think a lot of his thoughts is actually worth revisiting nowadays because I think this discussion has not been one that we have been... Us Europeans have maybe been more interested in it because we have this project with European Union, but generally speaking, this hasn't been that interesting since he's got the prize, right? But I think it might might be returning to the forefront now. What do you think of that? Yeah, uh, and actually, it uh, when when he developed mm-hmm. uh, his, his theory... It wasn't there. It wasn't that much in the forefront because oh. you had the Bretton Woods oh, uh, yeah, system yeah. uh, where you had pegged all the, the the major currencies to one another. So, in a sense, it worked like you had one mm-hmm. uh, not global but Western currency, yeah. and uh, and then the the Bretton Woods uh, system uh, broke down. Yeah, and uh, and we have this we. we We got the systems that we have today with floating exchange rate. Yeah. Major exchange rates are floating, and then within that you have uh, uh, common currency in yeah. Europe now. Yeah, you have pegs. The yeah. Danish krona is pegged to the Den- euro. Denmark is not yeah. part of the of the euro, but we have uh, pegged our currency for for 40 years. Yeah, uh, first to the. The German mark, yeah. and now to the Deutschmark, and mm-hmm. now to uh, to the euro. So we are acting as if we had a, a, a common currency, yeah. but we we don't. Uh, and um, and we could, if, if if we wanted to to revalue or devalue yeah. our currency, we could could do that. That yeah. would not be possible if we were part of of, of the, the euro. euro. This is so interesting. I think this is interesting because. Um, um, for many years the idea of having a pick currency has not been something that's been discussed it's just been taken for given in Denmark right but it has started to pop up now that at least there's the option right there's the option right I think it's a dangerous path and I, I don't trust the politicians to administer that really well but at least it's there um, and depending on like inflation after Corona Russian invasion of Ukraine and all these other insane things going on in the world who knows right but so I think it's this is actually a very interesting area of economics that I think is going to see a resurgent uh, if I should make a prediction yes. about yeah. and one should draw an inst- uh, a distinction between the policy you would have if you had optimal policymakers oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> and if uh, and when you have Policymakers uh, who have incentives not to be optimal, yeah, and that's that's actually the reason why we have the 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 the, uh, the currency peg we have in Denmark is that we had we came from from a world of very high inflation yeah. and, and low growth, uh, uh, a lot of macroeconomic prom- yeah. uh, problems. Then we tied 
in in effect we tap we 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 we, we the decided uh, that the Bundesbank, yeah. the German Bundesbank, should uh, run our or our our monetary policy, yeah. uh, and as they were better at it, yeah. inflation fell quite quickly, yeah. and 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 basically the. The only reason to have the peg is that uh, it gives you credibility you won't have if you if you are uh, if, if if you can decide on yourself. Oh yeah, especially like a small country like Denmark. Mm. So, all right, really interesting. Just to mention uh, in terms of like textbook stuff, what he's most famous for Mandel is the Mandel Fleming model and the Mandel Topping effect. And we actually talked about Topping in an earlier episode, so go check that out. But should we move on to the next two stars of today? Yes, but should just just mention the one 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 important uh, oh, yeah, implication of, of the model uh, yeah. Fleming model as, yeah. as mentioned is that um, um, if 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 you have a floating exchange rate mm-hmm. system, then uh, you you can have your as we talk about your own monetary policy. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, an implication of his model is that fiscal policy mm. is not effective ah. um, basically because the interaction interaction uh, with the exchange rate will uh, cause um, if, if you expand uh, public demand yeah. uh, that will cause interest rates to rise yeah. that will attract foreign currency uh, currency currency yeah. um, and um, and uh, so uh and and uh, but but the, the rise in the in, in the short term short term rise in in the currency would uh, would crowd out your your net exports yeah so 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 that's sort of the, the main yeah uh, that's very mechanism and, and yeah. in uh, if if you have if you have uh, a, a flexible uh floating ex- exchange rate and free Free oh. capital movement. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's uh, important that's as well. Important. If yeah, you don't have yeah. free capital movement, then you you could basically isolate yourself from yeah. the outside world. Yeah. On the other hand, if if you have fixed exchange rate, then you have to to uh, uh, to adopt the monetary policy uh, um, of the outside world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because capital movements would would uh, neutralize. Uh, Uh, if if you, for instance, expanded your yeah. your monetary policy, that would 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 cause um, your um, capital movements to 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 work against it. Yeah. Um, so so uh, and and you you wouldn't be able to 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 keep your 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 fixed exchange rate. Yeah. So, um, but uh, on, on the other hand, um, if if you If if your exchange rate is fixed, then uh, the idea of the model is then you can do more with with fiscal policy. Yes, because you won't see this uh, yes. effect of of hurting net next ex- export. Uh, yeah. So so that's that's uh, that's important. It's important to to remember this is this is uh, in in the very short run. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> and and we can always discuss whether. Uh, Economic policy, demand management, like that, is efficient yeah. uh, or effective uh, in, in the first place. We yeah. did that in, in in previous episodes, so so you can you can uh, go go back go, and go, listen go to those. Listen to that if if you want to. But that's 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 um, that's uh, I think it's 
very important uh, implication of of of, of his uh, of his model. And also, definitely, I mean, yes, these debates were. Uh, I mean, you're talking about my childhood and earth, early youth. I mean, I remember these debates quite well. Right? Like, obviously, I didn't follow the academic ones, but like the the policy side of them in the news and so on. Right? I mean, this this was hot hot stuff. So um, very important stuff. You are listening to Econ Roots, your podcast on the history of economic thought. Thank you for joining the conversation. Um, all right, let's move on. So now we have a joint prize. So the last two stars of the show is Sergeant uh, Thomas John Sargent and and Christopher Albert Sims. And uh, we'll do the buyer and Sargent first. And uh, and then talk a little bit about his um, his theory, and also going to read a little bit about a little bit from his speech because it's so good. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Thomas John Sargent, born July 19, 1943, is an American. Not a big surprise there. Most people on this show, um, and he is um, uh, a professor of economic and business at New York University, and he was awarded the prize in economics in 2011 together with Christopher Sims, we'll get to later, for their empirical resource, uh, research on empirical research on cause and effect in macroeconomy. Uh, as of 2020, he ranks as the 29th most cited economist. So that's pretty good. Um, he earned his uh, Bachelor of Arts from the University of California in, in Berkeley in 1964, and uh, where he also was awarded the universe, university medalist as most distinguished scholar in class of 1964. And he's got his PhD from Harvard in 68 uh, under the supervision of John R. Mayer. And uh, interestingly, one of his classmates there was Sims. So that's kind of, sort of funny. <laughs> he served in the army as first lieutenant and then later captain and then moved on to teaching. And he has had, held teaching position in many places, uh, many fine places. University of Pennsylvania, University of Minnesota, University of Chicago, Stanford, Princeton, uh, and is now at, at um, a New York University. Very active economist, has been a president of both American Economic Association and the Econometric Society. Uh, and he has... Uh, uh, um, has also been affiliated with the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He wrote a textbook with Lars uh, Lundquist, which is uh, very seminal in graduate economic uh, teaching today. And apparently he's a very, very valued uh, PhD teacher. Uh, his seminars at both Stanford and New York is, uh, is apparently a bit of an institution. Um, and... Um, uh, the reason why I got into economy in the first place was actually because he realized how badly affected his family were of the Great Depression. So, so it was sort of like a personal motivation. I think it's interesting to know their motivations a lot. Uh, before we get into his theory, <laughs> I'd just like to read a little bit from his uh, acceptance speech, which I just really like. So, quote, I state seven practical lesson lessons taught by my beautiful subject economics for those in doubt, which investigates the consequences of time and chance and cooperation and competition and foresight and incentives. Number one, many things that are desirable are not feasible. Number two, there are trade-offs between equality and efficiency. Number three, other people have more information about their abilities, their efforts, and their preferences than you do. Number four, everyone responds to incentives, including people you want to help. That is why social safety nets don't always work as intended. Number five, when a government spends, its citizens eventually pay, either today or tomorrow, 
either through explicit taxes or implicit ones like inflation and defaults on debts. Number six, it is feasible for one generation to shift costs to subsequent ones. National government debts and US social security systems do that. Number seven, most people want other people to pay for public goods and government transfers, especially transfers to themselves. I love this. And a quote, by the way, I love this. This is uh, every politician really should be like, have to take a test on this before, <laughs> before they can pass any laws. <laughs> I think it's so good. So anyway, Otto, why did Sargent get the prize? <laughs> a number of reasons. A number of reasons, A number yeah. of reasons, but um, uh, we, we talked about uh, in an earlier episode about the so-called Lucas critique. Yeah. And uh, Lucas' critique um, was uh, articulated by Robert Lucas, one of our previous uh, stars. stars. Yeah. Um, and he pointed out uh, that uh, there is a risk if you uh, observe uh, something, an economic relationship in one regime, <laughs> And you use that to change the regime. Regime, yeah. Then maybe uh, the, the relationship uh, won't uh, stand up. Mm -hmm. um, I think we had the example of of, uh, the, of Fort Knox, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, yeah, exactly. that it's a very heavily guarded Fort Knox, where they keep all the the the, 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 the U.S. Treasury gold, and um, and it's it's. It's never been attempted to be robbed, instead, except in the, in the James Bond movie. Uh, but if you took away the guard <laughs> from the from the, uh, the, the, the concluded that nobody ever tries to rob uh, Fort Knox and you took away the guards, uh, probably somebody would. Yeah. So you you would change the regime regime. So and you you couldn't. Uh, so there's this danger that that you that you misunderstand uh, what's happening in one regime when you move to another. Yeah. So what you what you should do then if if you observe something in the economy is to try to uh, find some relationships that that that, that are constant mm -hmm. uh, 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 over time mm -hmm. and and uh, constant between regimes. So and that's really what uh, Sargent has been working on. Mm -hmm. uh, he's been working on so-called structural models mm -hmm. um, and models where you look at the incentives of the individuals, mm -hmm. because incentives of the of the individuals, um, the way you, you you frame the incentives can change, but 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 the behavior of the individual. Uh, giving uh, given uh, incentives are. are, are, are more likely to, to to be constant over time. Yeah. So that that's really what uh, his his important contribution has been. Um, and um, so a way to also continue modeling rational expectations, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. He, yeah. He, he, and, and he did some t interesting technical work in 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 in. in Finding out how to close the rational expectation model because yeah. it's uh, it, it's it's a difficult model because it's not 
uh, it's determined on people's expectations expect, yeah. expectations into the future, future yeah. and you have to there has to be an equilibrium between yeah. uh, expectations and what you do now and if that changes expectations then you you change your behavior and that should be end up in an equilibrium in a equilibrium that's the point of the rational expectation revolution yeah. and he 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 found out how to how to do that technically um he actually moved a little beyond classical economics and that's or neoclassical economics right with, with recursive economics for instance the idea that people can make more choices over more time periods and these these kind of things and also remember he did he did stuff with bounded rationality and rational expectation and these things so he really did uh really did push the bar quite a lot um Also because you know a part of it is learning and how do you incorporate that as model is always hard because as you're saying that that gives a whole new dynamics to the model and and and, and how does that fit in so uh, very important person here um one other reason why i actually quite like him is because he is very focused on history like he, he does a lot of history work right like one of my favorite papers with him is called the macroeconomic features of the french revolution in the journal political economy um i have a joke here that uh, if people ask me what is a unique feature about my current job is that I don't think a week goes by without me having to somehow think about the French Revolution. <laughs> And there you go again. That was this week's feature. But also his, uh, actually his, um, uh, his really interesting Nobel lecture also draws on history. So exactly. he talks about how the war of independence, uh, independence, fiscal choices and institutional constraints created expectations which led to a future crisis. So so the, ni- the 1790 bailouts actually uh, had an effect in the, in the 1840s, so almost 100 years later. Right? Yes, uh, and actually he was... Um, uh, he dedicated to to the Europeans. Exactly, because, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it was not just uh, about history. It was nope. really about the lessons of his history. And, exactly, yeah, exactly. And, and That's what important. He was, his point was that... Um, When you have a, a debt crisis, yeah. a, a national debt crisis, then you very often have uh, it has revolutionary consequences. Yeah. Uh, you often have exchange, uh, regime change when you get into a debt crisis, and yeah. the reason uh, actually is uh, has a little bit to do with game theory, yeah. um, which we'll get to in future episodes. We'll get to but, it, yeah. but uh, the idea is that if 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 you can't If you reach a point where it's 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 uh, it's a preferred strategy not to 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 honor your debt, yeah. Uh, then if you don't change anything, mm-hmm. it will still be a, a preferred strategy, or the outside world would yeah. expect it to be, and then you can't borrow. Yeah. So, so if if uh, basically if 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 you if you don't honor your your Uh, your debt to your bank, and you come down, <laughs> come down the next day and say, "Can I have a new loan?" Yeah. <laughs> They'll probably say no. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> What has changed? What has changed? Uh, so yeah, something changed. must change, and yeah. that uh, that that was his his point that yeah. that, that the, the debt crisis created a much stronger federal state yeah. uh, in the U.S. than yeah. was intended. Yeah. Uh, Because of the debt yeah. uh, running over from from the Revolutionary War, and yeah. his warning to Europe was. Or rather, he said, "This this is your choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you if you don't uh, take care of the the debt you run up, yeah. then it will have it will have uh, revolutionary consequences. You will have yeah. a regime change in, in Europe, and maybe 
actually we're seeing a little bit about oh, right yeah. now. Uh, yeah. We we have just uh, seen the the EU uh, uh, quite extraordinary take on uh, common debt, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, originally completely. Uh, on th- unthinkable, but really provoked by by the debt problems in Italy and other yeah. southern European countries, we have now taken on uh, a common common debt. So yeah. we're getting a debt union, and yeah. we are getting more and more fiscal policy yeah. uh, centralized because yeah. of that. So that could drive the institutions, just like we talked about. Yeah. The euro could. It caused integration economically yeah. and politically. Yeah. Now the, the debt crisis in Europe could uh, could drive uh, political integration yeah. and uh, and yes, it did in the US. That was his point, and yeah. I think it was very very valid. That's point. a really good point. It's also, but it's also a, a point that is, <laughs> as a European, a little bit sad, right? I mean, the the US had this step because they had to fight fight the British for their independence, and there was a big discussion and all that stuff, right? And we have this step because we have in, in we have uh, uh, irresponsible national politicians. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that? This, that is less glorious, I think, than, a, than actually fighting a war for independence. That's true. That's true. Um, but I actually like. I mean, I like how he's able to do this. I mean, he's a gifted modeler, but he's also very keen on on using history in the right way. For instance, just a small side. He's very critical of the freshwater, saltwater distinction within economics. I mean, he says something along the lines that, you know, it might have been true for like six months or something like that, you know, but but it's not really true anymore. And who are these people and all this? So, uh, and he thinks like that is, you know, it might have some explanatory power, but it's not a real use of history, right? And and he, he likes this idea about data slapping you in the face, both in terms of data sets, but also in terms of like historical facts, actually being very empirical. I, I like his approach to empiricism a lot. Um, um, other things we should mention. I think we talked a lot about. I mean, he's definitely, he's definitely like one of the. He puts a further nail, or at least hammers it further in 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 the Keynesian coffin, so so to speak, right? Like with with this. I mean, um, well, he's after 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 Keynesianism. Yeah. Um, so 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 yes. Yeah, um, definitely. If, if you're talking about the the original Keynesianism, um, um, yeah, exa- exactly. So. Um, a great segue, I think, or at least a segue. <laughs> Let's let the listeners decide if it's great or not. Uh, um, into Sims is um, there's an interview with them. It was actually a really interesting interview because they talk a lot about modeling on the on the Nobel laureate uh, on the Nobel uh, Prize page. And uh, at one point, the interviewer asked them, so they're being interviewed together, uh, Sergeant and Sims, and he asked them, "Are people rational?" And Sergeant says yes, and Sims says no. <laughs> And then they go on and argue their case. <laughs> this is just an amazing episode, right? So, so Sergeant thinks they are. Sims doesn't think so much. So, before we go into why he might um, think so, let's let's put a little bit of, of background on um, on Sims here. So, so he was born uh, October uh, twenty one in nineteen forty two. Uh, he has a fun story about why he became an economist in many ways because apparently he had yeah, oh, not apparently he had a an uncle uh, uh, Mark Larson who was a professor at Yale was an economist but 
he he actually more resented him than saw him as a role model, which I think is. I can do better than him. Yeah, I can do better than him. I think is fun. But anyway, he was born in Washington D.C. Uh, his mother was a Democratic politician, and um, and the daughter of, uh, uh, of of William Morris Larison, who was uh, a very famous uh, labor's right advocate and so on. And his uh, his uh, dad worked for the State Department. Uh, he's got his A.B. in mathematics from Howard University, magna cum laude, in 1963. He considered doing abstract math, but sort of chickened out. His own words. Uh, no, I don't. I'm not sure he said chicken out, but it's sort of like uh, the the idea here that uh, that he he did economics because he thought it was more safe, and he did that. He graduated with a PhD from Howard in 1968 under the supervision of Henry S. Houthager, and uh, he held, he has held teaching positions at Howard, Yale, uh, and since 1999, Princeton. Uh, where he's been for the for the most time, again, just like Sachin, he is uh, has been involved uh, in uh, uh, in the Econometric Society and the American Association of Economics, where he was also president and so on. Um, yeah, so why did he get the prize <laughs> or join the prize with Sachin? Well, uh, basically, he he got it for the same reason mm-hmm. or, or the prime reason. Yeah, uh, he also uh, tackled the. Uh, the Lucas critique, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he did it in a different way than Sargent. Sargent mm-hmm. built these structural models uh, where you model the individual and try to 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 find uh, constants, yeah. uh, uh, which are constant across different regimes. Um, Sims. Uh, did it by uh, introducing um, a way of dealing with macroeconomic data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, in, in what is called um, a VAR model, mm-hmm. a vector auto, yeah. uh, auto regression yes. uh, model, it has nothing to do with, with soccer. No. <laughs> I think <laughs> they are using <laughs> a VAR model as well, but that's a very different thing. Uh, uh, a VAR model basically is a model that uh, looks at the relationship between uh various data over time and then it introduces uh, structural train mm-hmm. change uh, explicitly so if, if you have a regime change you you, you put that explicitly into the model and you can see the effect of the regime change and then you can tease out what is uh, what is the result of mm-hmm. the, the regime and what is the uh, what is uh, the a more constant relationship between data so that so uh, uh, it's a different way of trying to tackle um, the, the 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 same problem. Yeah, yeah. And I actually think he's uh, he's very important for this. Like um, he's very uh, staunch in saying that the point of economic models is probability, not necessarily results, right? And I think that is a very important term. Like that we actually understand the errors, right, more than yes. like like the predictions. Um, and um, so one of the things he, he's pointing out is the idea that. Uh, errors particularly come from the fact that a politician or policymaker often assumes they know more than they do, right? And therefore, there's a certain uh, particular structure to the errors we see, right? Which is, which I think is a good point. 
um, and uh, in that he is also um, he thinks that, or at least that's how I understand him, that that is the point of economic modeling is actually understand the probability and the errors more so than the actual predictions. And in that it differs from other places. So one of the more controversial things that he's pointing out is saying one of the problems with climate models, for instance, climate change model, is that they they are made by people who come from engineering background, where you want to see the result and if you if you're in doubt you do an experiment we can't do experiments with the economy we can do experimental economics on like a small scale but we can't do like a whole experiments with the danish economy or the u.s economy and stuff like that so we cannot test it like that so his argument is saying like economic models are better because they're actually dealing with policymakers who make mistakes and that's actually what we're focusing on and i think it's a very valid point it's a, it's a hard point for many people to graph it's hard to explain in the news but it's extremely important yes uh, uh, that's that that's exactly right um cool so um, um i don't have that much more to say to sims actually do you have uh, i think th- actually uh i would like to give him credit for for the revolution that's been in the way uh, economists model the yeah, economy. I agree. We, I agree. For, um, for uh, he he pointed out that the way we did it in the past, we 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 had these so-called Keynesian models, yeah. uh, which were often very huge models, yeah. and you would uh, build them by uh, estimating one relationship at a time. Yeah. So you would look at the relationship between, for instance. Uh, the interest rate Trade savings, and, yeah. and, and then you would look uh, at other relationships, uh, and then you would build all that together. Yeah. And uh, what you do, what, what you do when you do that, uh, you're actually making, a, uh, you're building error into the system. Yeah. Uh, this was very uh, convincingly pointed out by by Sims yeah. uh, that, that that these these models are are, are, are in, they are they are incorrect because yeah. you, you you model like that and and that explains why I, I've I've been this as civil servant work working with with the, the, the model at the time in in the 1990s uh, and 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 the Uh, beginning of this century, um, and and we we knew that we couldn't use our uh, huge fans, fancy models to to predict the, uh, the 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 business cycle at all. It would come out completely wrong, even if we even if all relationships were were estimated uh, and and seemed correct. Yeah. Uh, but when you build them together, they you you, you it develops a chaotic uh, system rather. So. Uh, and and that was that was uh, pointed out by 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 Sims especially and both Sims and Sargent yeah. have led a new way of uh, a modeling which is, is is not prone to to that criticism yeah. as much. Yeah, and I think that's a wonderful example of how we economics develop as a field. We do it correctly, right? I mean, we. We build on and we learn and so on. We don't get stuck in our own pitching hole. We actually try to try to move on and so on because it is. I mean, economics deals with 
with with social phenomenon and society, especially macroeconomics, which is infinitely complex. Like, so it will always be a simplification. So, the better we can do our simplification, the better, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you should you, you should simplify uh, even more. Yeah. If if you if you try to 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 make your model more complex, yeah, uh, as they did in the past, yes, exactly. uh, it it would uh, actually be more wrong. Yeah. So a, a simpler model can often be a truer model. Yes, true. Um, which sounds like a paradox, yeah. but it, if if you look at it and you understand it, it, it really isn't. No, I agree. Actually, this is a bit of a teaser for the next episode where Krugman actually um, Krugman uh, talk, calls this way of modeling the, uh, the the simplifying way of modeling the MIT model that that you that you cut a lot out and just leave what is the actual main relationships here going on. Uh, but of course, it, there are many ways to model and uh, uh, and so on. But I think this is uh, this is definitely something that the people who are beyond interest in economics, but actually doing economics should have some some very clear idea about uh, this discussion. Cool. So I think this has been a great discussion. Actually, so 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 we call this uh, modern macro perspectives, and uh, with all the stuff going on in the world, it's uh, it's really interesting to see if we are uh, how how this <laughs> will be in the future. So uh, so thank you so much for a great conversation, Otto, and uh, thank you, dear listeners, for spending time with us. Until next time, stay rational. Thank you so much for spending your valuable time with us exploring the history of economic thought. You are welcome to email comments and suggestions to stefan at cpas.dk. Please like and share and recommend this podcast anywhere you can and think it's relevant. Until next time, stay rational. Yeah.